0: Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. It is a scorcher of a summer here in the UK and today's minisode is all about that summer favourite, fish and chips. Really, where would we be without them? Today, I'm going to go on a lightning tour of the history of fish and chips. Grab your salt, your wooden fork and get ready to burn your mouth scoffing them straight from the paper. First, I'd like to give a couple of very quick shout outs. Firstly to Rob, long-time supporter of the show. He has been inspired by the podcast. Add some Victorian history to his teaching syllabus. That's awesome. Second, a friend of mine, Stephanie Langton, has just started a new business. As a reward for not being stabbed in the back once during any of our D&D games, despite her playing a cold-hearted rogue, I've said I'll give her a shout-out on the show. This isn't a paid advert, it's just my way of helping a friend and enriching our community. So if you like beautifully sewn objects like dice bags, Julu bags, table runners or have a sewing commission, please visit www.thesewingpixie.co.uk or email contactthesewingpixie at gmail.com. The Victorians were adept at sewing, and it is lovely to see the tradition continued. Now, the origins of modern fish and chips are disputed heavily. Two main claimants are the Mallin family of London and the Lees of Mosley near Manchester who allegedly sold fish and chips in the 1860s. It is the quintessential English dish, isn't it? It is so new. The British were eating pasta as early as 1390 in the High Middle Ages, long before they ever ate fish and chips. We know Thomas Jefferson ate fried fish in the Jewish fashion on a visit to London. Britain used to have access to immense fish stocks, and most of the country was either near the sea or a river or a lake, making fish an important part of the diet, and often the main source of protein. That's quite tantalising. Fried fish has a long history in the Mediterranean, so historians think that it probably made its way to the UK from Spanish and Portuguese trading routes in the 17th century. That's not to say that perhaps some individual British or English chefs hadn't tried their hand at something similar English cooking has long been the subject of appalling propaganda. But England has a long history of excellent cooking with local ingredients and a long history of being subject of French ridicule over its cooking. During World War II and after, rationing destroyed fine cooking for a generation. And it wasn't until the late 1980s and early 1990s even that it began to recover. When we get to Queen Victoria we will find a woman who loved her food and had the time, money and resources to indulge herself. Some of the menus were stunning. Anyway, that's for another day. So back to fish and chips. There is a reference to a fried fish warehouse in Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. The kind of fried fish he was probably referring to would have been sold by street sellers from trays slung round their necks, and these would have been sold with bread or jacket potatoes. Now the other key ingredient of the national dish is the chip. It seems that the prevailing view is that the chip was from Belgium. According to the Federation of Fish Fryers, elsewhere in the British Isles, in Scotland, Dundee City Council claims that, in the 1870s, that glory of British gastronomy the chip was first sold by Belgian immigrant Edward de Garnier in the city's green market, end quote. So that doesn't quite sit with the claim of the earlier shops. There's something a bit fishy going on with this claim. Establishing a single point of origin for food is tricky. It was hard with the ice cream episode, but fish and chips is on another level. As you can see, we are swimming into murky waters. I think what they meant is that the first chip sold in Scotland was sold by Edward de Garnier, which would probably fit the timeline. A proper recipe for potatoes, slices, fried in fat and sprinkled with salt appears in 1855 in Alexis Sawyer's book A Shilling Cookery Book for the People. In 1859... In A Tale of Two Cities, Dickens mentions, quote, husky chips of potatoes, fried with some reluctant drops of oil, end quote. The word chip was actually his invention. So Dickens is the reason why the British quite rightly refer to them as chips, whilst the Americans adopted the French fries from French frites. The British retained the word chips for both full-size chips with thin ones being referred to as French fries, whilst the American preference was to call both sizes fries. A lot of that actually comes down to the fast food industry. Don't confuse either with the dried fried snack that is thinly sliced and eaten from a packet. Those are potato chips in America and crisps in England. So if any of my American listeners is in the UK and wants to meet for a pint and finds these a nibble of fries, you need to order chips. If you hear someone offering you crisps, they are offering you potato chips. But someone had to bring about the glorious marriage of fish and chips to each other. The Manchester Evening newspaper is clear in its view. To quote from a 2015 article in the paper, regionally, a man known only as Mr Lees is thought to have pioneered the chip In the north of England in 1863, selling chips out of a wooden hut in Mossley. But a blue plaque at Oldham's Tommyfield Market commemorates the first ever frying of the chip in Britain in the area as early as 1860. Therefore, the oldest fish and chip shop in the UK was in Oldham, right? There is still a fish and chip shop on the site in business today, called Man's Walk. The blue plaque proudly affirms that this is the origin of the whole of the modern fast food industry. That's a big claim, and demonstrates the huge changes introduced in the Victorian era. Which is confusing, as in a later interview, the owner claims there is no blue plaque. London can blast back though, quote, Step up Joseph Malin, a Jewish immigrant who opened London's fish and chip shop in Bow 78 Cleveland Way to be precise. It is said that Malin's shop owned in 1860, though other sources say 1865, and nobody knows for sure. Either way, the joint concept had made its way to London's streets and Londoners' stomachs by the mid-1860s." End quote. The debate continues to rage. The London Evening Standard has allegedly conceded defeat to Manchester but frankly there's only a whisker in it either way and it is surely inevitable that someone would have hit the culinary jackpot at some point. Arguments have continued to rage including amongst historians, trade associations, councils and newspapers. The National Federation of Fish Fishfriars presented the blue plaque to Malins in London, historian Bob Worsnip was outraged, and the debate reached the pages of the Guardian newspaper. Let's think about the importance and impact of this. Leave aside the cultural imagery, all the four best-of-British, end-of-the-seaside-pier stuff, and look at what this meal represented for the Victorians. This was a huge, huge deal. Remember that obtaining food with good calories and good nutritional value, was very difficult in the early to mid-Victorian period. Suddenly, a dish comes along that is incredibly cheap and has plenty of calories. It's very fresh and also has the nutrients from fish and the inevitable mushy peas. The invention of deep-sea trawling with steam-powered fishing vessels equipped with ice refrigerators combined with increased supplies of fat and oil plus the expansion of the railways meant millions of factory and mill owners throughout the country could suddenly eat a cheap, nutritious meal. Don't forget the huge bonus that it was cooked very quickly. Working a long shift in a mine or in a shipyard or a foundry meant men often returned home after meals had finished and the other household members were asleep. Fish and chips could be grabbed on the go. It was one of the great fuel sources of the Industrial Revolution. George R. Sims, the Victorian journalist, wrote extensively about the late Victorian period. His writings provide a fascinating glimpse to fish and chips at the end of the Victorian age. In London's light refreshments, he stated, It is in the evening that the fried fish and potato chip shop, the ham and beef shop and the cook shop, whose specialities are the hot sausage, the cooked onion and mashed potato do a busy trade end quote he goes on to provide a nice description of some of the differences between the fish and chips of the east and west end quote the fried fish shop of the east is very like the fried fish shop of the west but in the matter of chips there is a slight difference it is in the vinegar bottle it may be the desire of the east ender to get more for his money but this I know that where the West End Chipper is contented just to sprinkle his or her pennyworth, the East End Chipper shakes the bottle for a good two minutes in order to get a grand result. Salt for fish and chips or batter pudding you take with your finger and thumb from a big salt box on the counter and you bring the salt out with you and do your seasoning in the street. End quote. I know what you were thinking. Yes, but this was just fried junk food really, wasn't it? Well, according to Denton's food guide, quote, There is no doubt that fish, of itself, is a good source of essential vitamins C, B6 and B12, omega-3 fatty acids, along with a bit of iron, zinc, calcium and iodine. Potatoes, too, are unquestionably a source of good stuff, in particular vitamin C, potassium and fibre. The problem comes in because of the fact that both the fish and the chips in a portion from your favourite chippy are deep fried in oil and usually drenched in salt. So does this make fish and chips a write-off when it comes to healthy eating? Not according to the Federation of Fish Fryers, the organisation that runs the annual fish and chip shop of the year competition. The Federation asserts that an average portion of fish, chips, and peas contains only 7.3% fat, of which 2.8% is saturated fat. This compares with 10.8% fat in a pork pie and 16 grams you will find in a tuna mayonnaise sandwich. So, by today's fat and calorie obsessed standards, it isn't great but it is far healthier than pizza, or most Chinese takeaways, and many other dishes. It has fewer calories than a Big Mac meal, and there's no added sugar. Excessive calories and fats are an important consideration in the modern world, where obesity is the scourge of the West, and the greatest threat to most people's lives. The Victorian age, by contrast, was one where food scarcity and starvation remained significant issues. The Great Famine in Ireland in 1845 was scarcely 15 years before the first fish and chip shop claimed to open. People lived hard lives and a bountiful calorie supply was vital. Quote, Men worked on average nine to ten hour days for five and a half to six days a week giving a range from 50 to 60 hours of physical activity per week. Factoring in the walk to and from work increases the range of total hours of work-related physical activity up to 55 to 70 hours per week. Eighth report of the Medical Officer of the Privy Council, 1865 Parliamentary Papers, 33, 1866, end quote. Again, George Sims gives us a sharp insight into how the lack of food could still strike the ball even at a very late stage in the Victorian era. Quote, in the house of a Mrs R lived a family named Hind. Mrs Hind died of consumption, leaving four children and a husband out of work. He set out to look for it, and Mrs R took the four little ones into her room to sleep with her own six children out of her scanty earnings she fed them too when she was asked why she had taxed her limited resources to this extent she answered poor youngins how could i see a starving, and their father out of work and no mother the man is still out of work and mrs r has thought it her duty to keep his children for over six months orphans are not only kept They are passed on sometimes from family to family. There is a little crippled lad I know named Dennis Sullivan. Till lately, he was kept by an old watercress seller who had adopted him. A month or two since the poor old soul fell into the fire and was so severely burned that she died. And when the boy was to be sent to an institution, a brother of the old watercress woman, a poor hawker, came forward and said, he shan't be sent away. I'll keep him for the sake of the old woman as was so fond of him. One of the most touching cases of this kind I have ever met, I have alluded to elsewhere, but for the sake of my argument I shall repeat it here. A poor woman had taken charge of three children whose father was away in the country. She had children of her own as well. Sickness came upon her, and a terrible disease almost disabled her. Yet she refused to let the tiny little ones go uncared for. Dying slowly of dropsy, she was found one day propped up in a chair with a wash tub in front of her and with her poor weak hands making a brave struggle to wash the little ones' clothes that they might look clean and tidy at school, quote. By the 1880s, all but the poorest could supplement their meagre diets with fish and chips. Think about the sheer joy such a moment must have been. Families whose diet might have been borderline in the 1840s was being transformed in the 1870s and 1880s. Robert Sims is writing of the people who were all but destitute in the worst of the remaining slums of London in the late 1880s. He was an amazing journalist, but for most late Victorians... Starvation was mainly linked to unemployment. The days of acute shortages were slowly beginning to pass. Also, it is easy to form a misleading impression of Victorian health. The Victorians had no access to antibiotics or knowledge of genetics. Even reliable painkilling was sparse, with sanitation being patchy. This led to lots of deaths from disease and childbirth childhood mortality rates were shockingly high. This can give modern people the mistaken impression that most Victorians were less healthy than us overall. If you control for death and disease though, including many industry-related diseases, they were remarkably healthier than us in some ways. There's a fascinating research paper I've seen that argues that life expectancy in the mid-Victorian era was longer than the late Victorian era and, today, once disease and trauma are stripped away. Evidence they present us suggests that, quote, using average figures for work-related calorie consumption, men required between 280 walking and 440 calories heavy yard work per hour with women requiring between 260 and 350 calories per hour. This gives calorific expenditure ranges during the working week of between 3,000 to 4,500 calories per day for men and 2,750 to 3,500 for women. Total calorific requirements were more likely to have been even higher during the winter months with less insulated and less warm homes. Working-class Victorians used more calories to keep warm than we do. The same held true for workplaces, unless the work, certain factory occupations and blacksmithing, heated the environment to unhealthy levels. At the top end of the physical activity range were the navigators, the labourers who built, largely without machinery, the roads and railways, enabled the expansion of the British economy. These men were expanding 5,000 calories or more per day. End quote. The paper goes on to demonstrate it wasn't just the calorie demand that was greater. The diet of the mid-Victorians was far superior to the diet of the late-Victorians when unhealthy sugars and cheap produce from the empire flooded the home market. Fish and chips provided the much-needed calorie boost. But the mid-Victorian diet, even amongst the working class, was extremely high in fruit, vegetables, dairy, fish, some meat and alcohol. It was actually remarkably close to the modern Mediterranean and paleo diets. Remember that we are talking, though, about the main of the urban working class, the suffering of the poorest rural workers or slum dwellers, remained acute but they weren't the bulk of the population in this period the figures on food have an impact on how we can even view the Victorian army in the mid-Victorian period it had access to an incredibly well-fed population to recruit from there were problems with some having vitamin D deficiency but they were all incredibly tough from hard labour it is exceptionally unlikely that people today could cope with the fitness requirements for the life of a working Victorian man. Now that's an interesting thought, as it means that for 30 years, at the height of imperial expansion between, say, 1850 to uh, 1870 or 1875, the British were able to deploy an army that was made up of the fittest, toughest, best-fed soldiers in the world with access to technology light years ahead of any of its enemies. Fish and chips played a big part, along with the morale boost it provided to hungry soldiers. By the Boer War, the decline in the quality of diet was so sharp that army recruitment began to suffer. Naturally, a certain snobbery crept in about fish and chips. Fish has always been a popular dish, and of course, the rich, mocked fish and chips in paper in the east end of london but consider this description of a middle class fish dish quote the whitebait is a small fish caught in the river thames and long considered but erroneously peculiar to this river in no other place however is it obtained in such perfection fish should be cooked within an hour of being caught or they are apt to cling together they are cooked in water in a pan from which they are removed as required by a skimmer they are then thrown onto a stratum of flour contained in a large napkin until completely enveloped in flour in this state they are placed in a colander and all the superfluous flour removed by sifting they are next thrown into hot melted lard contained in a copper cauldron or stew vessel placed over a charcoal fire. A kind of ebubilation immediately commences, and in about ten minutes they are removed by fine skimmer, thrown into a colander to drain, then served up quite hot. At table they are flavoured with cayenne and lemon juice, and eaten with brown bread and butter, iced punch being the favourite accompanying beverage. End quote. That's from Peter Cunningham, The Handbook of London, 1850. For the upper classes, even greater complexity was available, but it was a world away from fish and chips, as is quote from Max Schlesinger, Saunterings in and about London, 1853, demonstrates, and I'm sorry I got your name wrong there, Max, quote, A few yards lower down the stream stands in aristocratic exclusiveness the Trafalgar Hotel which I beg to recommend to everyone who wishes to pay for a dinner twice the amount which would suffice to feed an Irish family for a whole week. If you like to date your dinner with people who hail the sensation of hunger as a harbinger of joy you had better enter this hotel and remain there for a few hours. The wines of Trafalgar like the lathe of old, wash away the cares of the past. For here, it is here that, according to ancient custom, Her Gracious Majesty's Ministers meet after the parliamentary session. They drink sherry and champagne and thank their stars that there are no more awkward questions to answer. As you can see, it's all about the drinking at this point. This wasn't fish and chips, though. The upper class have always had a variety of ways of eating fish elaborately, and the working classes eventually got their own fish and chip restaurant, where people would stop and eat with tables, chairs and cups of tea on the premises, rather than just taking it away. The visionary who made this happen was Samuel Isaacs in eighteen ninety six. Now there's a flip side to this. Don't forget that there are two sides to every meal. The eater, but also the cook. For the Victorians, fish and chips provided a fantastic employment opportunity. All a would-be fish and chip seller needed was a deep pot of some kind and a plentiful supply of oil, fish and potato. These were increasingly easy to obtain, so fish and chips was often sold from the front room of a house or from a market stall, rather than the full shop. Naturally enough, villages and towns near the sea became famous for their fish and chips. Victorian day-trippers, able to travel because of the railways, were able to eat fresh hot fish and chips on the promenade or along the pier. Perhaps, if they were particularly daring, they might roll up a trouser leg and paddle in the sea at the same time. Still, a question is haunting me. Did Queen Victoria ever eat fish and chips? Did that most British of monarchs ever taste that most British of dishes? The Queen was a huge and greedy eater. She was known to prefer her food plain and wolfed it down so quickly that many guests went hungry. She often had roast chicken, roast beef and ice cream with one of her favourite drinks, whisky mixed with wine. She had huge meals daily. She literally dined like a queen, as the old saying goes, much to Prince Albert's vexation. A lot of her menus had been preserved and tantalisingly in 1857, she and Prince Albert and 16-year-old Princess Victoria shared poached eggs and a clear chicken soup, followed by sole gratin, with fried whiting, which is a kind of fish, roast beef and capon with asparagus, volovans with bechamel sauce and grilled eggs, and an apricot flan, and waffles mit creme But this is frustratingly too early for the first appearance of fish and chips, and there's no mention of them. At a later visit to Scotland, she complained that the two scrawny chickens she had didn't come with chips. So, she's definitely had fried fish, and she was known to have mutton chops and fried potatoes for breakfast, but I don't think I can find a reference to the two fried fish and chips combined in a way that we would recognise as the classic dish. I don't think she would have ever had fish and chips bought from a shop, but whether she had ever heard of the fashion for fish and chips. And tried it in Brighton, perhaps? She certainly never ever went far from food if she could help it. Even her visits to the opera would involve taking a picnic hamper. She was always adventurous too. Boar's head, ostrich egg omelette, curries. She would guzzle anything. I imagine if she ever did come across them, they would have become a favourite snack. As you can guess, they're certainly a favourite of mine. I hope you get to have a nice portion of them over the summer or if you ever drop past the UK. Enjoy the fine weather and see you soon, my friends. Okay, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast.com at gmail.com Catch me on Twitter at Age of Victoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat Goodbye and I bid you adieu Until next time